You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. So I think we need more demonstrations of success. And I think that we need to see some of the demonstrations of success monetized, which is to say after a project has been de-risked, after it's producing at nameplate capacity, uh, I think what you're going to see in, with increasing frequency uh, are larger companies uh, with lower costs of capital, higher liquidity, coming in and taking these things over. I'm Bill Powers. It's Mining Stock Education. Thanks for tuning in. In today's show, we're speaking with Rick Rule, the resource investing living legend from Rule Investment Media, formerly from Sprott Global. Rick, welcome back onto the show. I've been told by many junior mining executives recently that this is the worst junior mining market that they've seen in their careers. Would you agree with that? Well, Bill, it depends on your perspective. I'm a check writer, not an issuer. What is worst for them is best for me. I would suggest that the market is morphing uh, in a way that you and I described that it might morph beginning a year ago, which is to say uh, differentiation qualitatively. The high quality issuers are having no trouble raising money at all. They're having oversubscribed issues uh, and they're having oversubscribed issues at prices that are very, very, very consistent with market conditions. The rest of the market, which is to say the lame, the halt and the blind, uh, are having difficulties as they should. You will note that when the Lendines go to market, they get money. When the living legends that we have at the Boca Raton Investment Symposium go to raise money, they find money. The, mar the market is much less forgiving with junior min mining companies that, that can't demonstrate at the offset uh, what purpose they might fulfill for society and for investors. So I think we are seeing a segregated market, and I personally believe that that's a healthy thing. But you would agree that even the living legends like Ross Beattie, your friend, can struggle in a market like this to where Equinox Gold, some people are frustrated with it, or even Lumina Gold. I remember listening to Ross in person at a conference years ago saying he hoped to sell it that year, and now it's like three years later. Uh, certainly, the market is less inclined to lunacy than it used to be. I personally believe, with regards to Equinox, that the market is skeptical about their ability to bring in uh, the uh, hard rock deposit in Ontario on time on budget. The market has seen so many failures in northern Ontario in the last two years that they're skeptical about this billion-dollar project. I happen to believe, knowing Ross Beattie and knowing his team, that they will bring in the deposit on time, on budget, at nameplate capacity. And if I am correct, if they do that, I think that the stock will re-rate substantially. With regards to Equinox, it might be that the overall market conditions lead to a skepticism that wouldn't normally exist around a Ross Beatty company. But certainly with regards to Equinox, you can point specifically uh, to what the market considers to be a difficulty. And of course, some of Equinox uh, troubles uh, have been self-inflicted, which is to say the cost creep that they experienced in Mesquite. Now, to their credit, they fixed that. Uh, there was also concern about the fact that they operate in West Mexico, where uh, they are hit both from a, a less mining-friendly regime uh, in the form of AMLO, uh, Mexico's idiotic president, oh, pardon me, Mexico's pre president, uh, and, and also, of course, by the prevalence of narcotraficantes uh, in Western Mexico, 
But I would suggest to you that the principal malaise that's confronting Equinox uh, is their ability to deliver or the market's perception of their ability to deliver their Northern Ontario construction project on time, on budget, given the incredible failure of the industry as a whole to meet expectations that they themselves guided in newly constructed projects in Northern Ontario. Okay, so as you referenced, there's been a lot of those development uh, failures from the feasibility going into the first commercial gold pour. So when do investors believe again that when a company says our feasibility says such and such, we raised the amount of money that our feasibility dictates and we can be successful? That golden runway leading into that first year of uh, cash flow, is in, are investors going to believe that again? I think we need uh, two things. I think we need more demonstrations of success. And I think that we need to see some of the demonstrations of success monetized, which is to say, after a project has been de-risked, after it's producing at nameplate capacity, uh, I think what you're going to see in, with increasing frequency uh, are larger companies uh, with lower costs of capital, higher liquidity, coming in and taking these things over. The confidence that the industry will get both from successful completions, which have been <laughs> frankly rare, uh, and then monetizations, uh, I think will give the developing community some of the cachet that they enjoyed in the latter half of the last decade. Rick, I've talked to friends that focus on junior mining, and we concluded that there's less than 100,000 people in the world that actually care about junior mining speculation on a day-by-day -day basis. Number one, would you agree with that? And number two, I heard someone say recently they believe that number is less than 20,000. Would you agree with that? No, I think those numbers are both silly. Uh, the best database uh, around that, I think, is the Agora Publishing Database of people who are willing to pay for investment information around natural resources, precious metals, and hard money. Uh, the indicated active database uh, uh, there is in the half million uh, people range. My own database, uh, New Editions, Net of Deletions, in the uh, Rural Investment Media database, which is primarily mining focused, although we do talk about oil and gas and some other commodities, uh, ha has about 80,000 actives. So I would suggest that the numbers that you're quoting uh, are very, very, very wrong to the negative side. But with the number with a, a half a million people, I couldn't see that many being actively involved in their portfolios on a day-by-day -day basis. I guess that's the type of investor we were referring to. I, I think the difficulty that you're seeing is that the number of aspiring public mining companies relative to the universe of investors is too high. And the investors are less stupid than they used to be. The issuers prefer stupid to smart investors, particularly the industry that's represented by the lame, the halt, and the blind uh, issuers. And I'm afraid that the lame, the halt, and the blind is the overwhelming number of issuers. If you look, at, for, as an example, at promotional groups who make a deliberate effort to communicate well with their investor base, uh, and also deliver results. As an example, Amir Adnani with his range of companies. He has absolutely no trouble raising money, 20 or $30 million at a crack. He has absolutely no trouble maintaining trading liquidity in names like UEC above half a million uh, shares a day. 
and he has an active investor database uh, through the combined companies at 90,000 people. It isn't as easy as it used to be. That's because the mining industry as a whole has abused the privilege that it enjoyed for the last 30 years. The short report on UEC that came out and sent the shares down 15%. I, I suppose by the referencing UEC, you would not agree with that short report? Well, I'm not saying I agree or not. Uh, one of the things about having a 90,000 person database is that your share price uh, reflects your promotional efforts in addition to reflecting the uh, assets that you control. The criticisms in the short report, which is to say excessive GNA, one needs to ask themselves excessive with regards to what? The promotional expenditures are very high, but their cost of capital is very low. Is there a trade-off? Individual investors will have to make up their mind with regards to that. Now, Bill, uh, it is alleged, I won't confirm or deny, that 25 or 30 years ago, I was active in stock promotion. If it is true that I had been active in stock promotion 25 or 30 years ago, I would have welcomed a large short position. A large short position uh, indicates stock that has already been sold and will have to be bought. In other words, a short ticket is a buy ticket. The question is, what price will it fill? If the spokespeople are right and the company's assets are decent quality, that short ticket will have to be filled at a higher price. If the shorts themselves are right, uh, and the company's aspects are suspect, that short ticket will be filled, but it'll be filled at a lower price. For me personally, having a high-quality issuer with a very large short position against it is a wonderful thing. We battled the shorts in the formation of, Beta, of Bima Gold, and we murdered them. We battled the shorts in the early days of First Quantum, and we murdered them. We battled the shorts with Silver Standard and Pan American, we battled the shorts with Paladin, and in every case, we put the shorts in the dump, in the, in the dumpster, in the heap. There were other circumstances where our judgment with regards to what companies we should back was less good, and the shorts won. That's part of the game. So you like a battle, and you named your new bank Battle Bank. Battle is, bank. That, <laughs> is that why, Rick? <laughs> well, that had that didn't have to do with battling for shorts. That just had to do with battling for better, better, better banking or battling for your business. Okay. We looked at the competitive landscape in banking. Uh, I, I looked myself, uh, and I saw the value proposition offered up by my financial supermarket bank as being lousy. Uh, I don't believe for a minute, Bill, that I can defeat J.P. Morgan Chase uh, or I can defeat Wells Fargo or Bank of America, but they can't defeat me either. There are certain things that we can do better than them, and we will do better than them, and we are doing better than them. Uh, and the consequence of that is that unlike our earlier bank, Everbank, where we started business with no customer backlog, no indication of interest, we're starting this bank with 7,200 people on the reserve list. That's the kind of battle I love to have. So battle is a synonym for competitive, we could say, yeah. as well. You know, I, I, I won't say which bank it is, but I walked into my financial supermarket not too long ago, walked into the branch. First of all, the branch manager, very, very nice, very warm lady, somebody who you'd like to have tea and cookies with. And I was asking about deposit products because I've had a couple of liquidity events recently. And she pointed me to a white service phone, I guess, connecting me to India. Suffice it to say, she didn't understand her deposit products. And that was understandable because the bank had 14 different deposit products, five of which 
promised to pay me no interest. Uh, what utility did the branch offer me? None. Uh, what benefit do I get from 14 products, which I believe were primarily organized to confuse me? None. What possible benefit would I get from a deposit product that didn't pay me interest? None. At Battle Bank, we're going to have a high-yield account. It's going to pay in the top quartile of deposit uh, interest rate payers nationwide. If you want to use it as a savings account, that's great. If you want to use checks against it, that's great too. It's up to you. It's your money. We're renting it and we're going to pay you for it. That's what battling is about. Yeah. As a U.S. investor in Canadian private placements for junior mining, my greatest frustration with my U.S. banks is the percentage fee that they charge me to convert from U.S. dollars to the exact amount of Canadian dollars received by the issuer. Is Battle Bank going to fight for my business in that regard? Battle Bank's going to go further than that. You will be able to have a Canadian dollar denominated CD or a Canadian dollar denominated money market uh, uh, account in the U.S. I myself used EverBank for that for years. I got around exchange fees because I didn't pay them. And I didn't have to open an account at a Canadian bank. I could open an account in a U.S. bank and I could do my banking on my phone. Uh, I could denominate my money in U.S. dollars, Canadian dollars, Australian dollars, uh, Brit uh, British pounds, Swiss francs, euros. Uh, all of that was available to me, 24 currencies. And that'll all be available to you at Battle Bank. You will be able to participate in uh, Canadian private placements, sweep Canadian dollars into your account, keep them in Canadian dollars, wire out money in Canadian dollars for Canadian private placements without paying exchange fees. And by the way, while getting paid interest. Well, this, this interview is not sponsored by Battle Bank. I might want to add that at this point. <laughs> but jumping back to junior mining stocks, I was thinking this, Rick. In your four-plus decades of observing successful, independent-minded, self-directed junior mining speculators, have you ever met one that was wildly successful that didn't love geology? That didn't love geology? Uh, I have seen some very very successful speculators who didn't have a very good knowledge of or probably interest in geology. But those people were very good at hiring geologists and taking the information that they got from geologists, which is to say that while they didn't do the work, they paid to get the work done. And then they incorporated reality that they paid for rather than narrative. Certainly, I look at the astonishing success that Frank Justra has, has enjoyed over the four decades that he and I have been in the business together. And I wouldn't describe Frank as being primarily interested in geology. I would describe Frank as being extraordinarily competent uh, at, pay, uh, at hiring and paying for good geological talent. And I would credit him, too, with having the good sense to pay attention to the information that he acquired, whether or not it was convenient for him. Uh, I point, too, to my friend Paul Stevens, uh, whose real expertise has been technology. He's turned into a very, very successful natural resource investor, not because of any innate interest or capability in geology, but rather because his Rolodex, admittedly a dated term, uh, his contacts uh, are populated with high-quality geologists, and when he needs information that he doesn't possess himself, he's willing to go out, hire the best geologists he can find, and pay them. And is that what you did with Andrew Jackson? 
for, I, for your business? Uh, I, I'm uh, of two minds. I have been fascinated uh, with geology my entire adult life, uh, and I like to do the basic work myself. But I'm certainly uh, familiar with my shortcomings. Uh, I had Brent Cook working for me before uh, Andy Jackson. Uh, Andy Jackson, Neil Adshed, Justin Tolman. I would say that of all the financial guys who invest in the junior mining space, yeah, this is going to sound very arrogant, I am the single best at hiring geologists. Uh, I have the ability when I hire a geologist to understand uh, fairly well that geologist's bias, their background, what particular subset of geology I can use them for particularly well. I wouldn't probably attempt to encourage most individual investors to do that because the scale of my operation and my ability to amortize the expense uh, over client commissions and fees means that I can afford and I need to be a more sophisticated consumer of geological science. And is it true that sometimes you would even give your geologists a line of credit so that they could learn how to speculate even as you learn geology from them? That's very true. That was a that was a trick that I used. I I gave them a living as opposed to excessive salaries. Uh, I paid them bonus based on successful efforts, but I also gave them a line of credit because I was more interested in what they were going to do with their own money than in what they thought I should do with my money. I always thought that that was a more valuable opinion, and, and that turned out to be uh, very good for me and very good for them. One. Criticism I might have of most geologists who come from the mining industry to the financial services industry is that their knowledge has been too abstract uh, rather than applied. Uh, I tried to teach them how to turn rocks into money. Uh, and the best way to teach somebody how to turn rocks into money is not by merely doing geology, but rather by understanding how the geology uh, will increase the value of the company. And as a consequence, hopefully, it's share price. So you have a conference in about six weeks, the Rule Symposium. And would that be one of the goals of that symposium, to teach people how to turn rocks into money? Absolutely. The, the whole reason for existence of rural investment media is investor education. Uh, and the Rule Symposium is really met as an outgrowth of things like the Rural Mining Classroom, where we teach people how to invest uh, in mining stocks. The live symposium is really a laboratory where people can use other lessons taught by rural investment media uh, to improve both their knowledge uh, and their net worth. The symposium, of course, is the sort of crystal point, the focus point. Uh, at the symposium, we will do all things at once. It'll be a smorgasbord. We'll have great big picture speakers that give you sort of a a worldview, a paradigm, not the kind that you would get on uh, NBC or CBS, uh, but rather the Jim Rickards of the world, the Doug Casey's of the world, the Bill Bonner's of the world, the Nomi Prins of the world, the Grant Williams of the world. People whose big picture uh, outlook is important, but different from that which you would generally get. If you are in league with that big picture, uh, we will also have uh, analysts and portfolio managers who have been in the space for 30 and 40 years. People who didn't learn to spell gold three years ago as a consequence of COVID. More importantly, Bill, as you know, uh, every year since uh, 2002, we've had a feature called the Living Legends, 
where uh, entrepreneurs who have built multi-billion dollar companies from scratch talk about how they did it and why the lessons that they learned made them better investors and how they can make you a better investor. Importantly, too, the uh, qualification for being a, a public company exhibitor uh, at our conference is that the directors of the conference have to own your stock. At most conferences, the qualification to exhibit is a pulse and a check that cashes in reverse order of importance. Now, sadly, Bill, there's no guarantee that because I own a stock, it'll go up. But there is a guarantee that every public company exhibitor at our symposium has been vetted and has passed that vetting process well enough that we've invested both our time and treasure in them. And the final thing that makes the conference unique relative to any other investment conference that I give is uh, that I see, pardon me, is an explicit money back guarantee. Any attendee who comes to the conference, either live or this year virtually, will live stream the conference to people who can't come to Boca Raton, has an absolute ironclad money back guarantee. If you don't believe that you got your money's worth, you get your money back. Now, interestingly, the most common uh, reason given for requesting refunds traditionally has been that there was more information available than the attendee thought that he or she had the willingness or the ability to understand. In other words, we gave people too much, and that's a valid reason. If for any reason you don't believe that you got your money's worth, either with live attendance or with virtual attendance, we will, on a no-questions-asked basis, give you the money back. We would, of course, appreciate it if you told us why you didn't get value so that we can incorporate your suggestions into next year's conference and re-earn your tuition. Excellent. Well, Rick, I will link to the sign up for your symposium in the show notes below. It's been a while since you've been on the show. I really enjoy touching base with you and thank you for your insights today. Bill, thank you. And any of your uh, listeners who uh, like what I have to say about resources are invited to continue the conversation with me in a very focused fashion. If you go to ruleinvestmentmedia.com and li list your natural resource stocks, I personally will rank them 1 to 10, 1 being best, 10 being worst. If you're interested in the symposium, by all means, in the question and comment section, write symposium. If you, like Bill Power, occasionally enjoys participating in private placements, and you care about what placements I personally participate in on a no-obligations basis, write in placements. And finally, if you would describe your own relationship with your current bank as substandard, and would like to let Rick Rule battle for your business. Uh, in the question and comment section, either write bank or battle bank, uh, and we'll give you more information uh, about a business that we think will benefit every single person who listens to your podcasts. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. 
The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility—certainly not the certainty—but the possibility of ten for one returns, as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks, and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector, and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident, and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because、um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met, you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors, and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own. Thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature, and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.